Welcome to Prawn Talk. My name is Malcolm Prawn Prawnson. And I'm Prawn Fitzprawn. Oh, that's a good pause. That's a good I'm quality pause. pause. Longer. Every, every episode, it's going to get incrementally longer. <laughs> Until eventually, the entirety of the podcast is the silence of Fitzprawn. It's going to be at the end. And that's it's all going to be one long line of dots. Dot, 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 dot all the way to yeah. the end. We'll just become more and more avant-garde. It'll just be Prawn. And then an hour of silence, and then Fitzprawn. I'd listen to that. I would listen to that. I listen to drone. I would listen to that in a heart. You're like, <laughs> no, because I'm just gonna go. Mm. <laughs> I can meditate to that. So after a long absence of oh, Jesus, I can master After a long, not in the same fucking rock pool. You better hop down the beach if you want to do that. It's salty enough in here. Anyway, I'll go off to the side with a bit of Kleenex. <laughs> oh. And not just with our uh, sarcastic opinions. For the first time in a long time, we're going to bring back the randomizer button. I don't remember if we even called it that. So we're going to press the button. Yeah, go for and it. And the button is going to be pressed now. <laughs> the subject is movie endings. Oh. Aha. Oh. So I guess there will be spoilers. Uh, yeah, my God. Spoiler alert! What is the first ending that leapt into your head when you heard that? Yeah, I mean, probably the first ending that jumped into my head was the ending of... Have you seen Have you seen any of the, uh, spoiler alert, Apu trilogy at all? No. No? You've probably heard of them, though, right? No. Not the films by Satyajit Ray? No. Really? Not the Apu trilogy? No, you've... No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Not even the Apu trilogy? No, I've... <laughs> I've, I've heard of it, I think, in the sense that I think Kermode did a list of Probably. best children's it, films. It's and I think not the children's films. They are children's films. No, 100% not. 100% not. They're actually they're based on a very well-regarded Indian filmmaker, Satyajit Ray, who I, I hope I'm not mangling the name, who kind of worked predominantly in the 40s and 50s, um, which is around about the time that they date from. I think the first one is 1947. The one in particular that I'm going to be talking about is the third in the trilogy. So the best known is the film called Papa Panchali. Mm. Go down IMDb best of lists. It's you will find it. It's always there. It's one of the most well-regarded films in the Indian film canon, which does not include those films which are generally thought of as being Indian films, e.g., Bollywood films. It's not a musical film, although music does play an integral part, diegetically and non-diegetically, in the film. Well, that's because that's it depends which region of India, right? Because it's like yeah. different. Like Bollywood is just one. Bollywood is Mumbai, basically. Yeah. So that's just like one bit of a country that has like massive film industry in loads of different regions. So the best way to sort of talk about the film is is not to go into too much depth about necessarily the trilogy itself, although they're often sort of like the original Star Wars trilogy, marked down as being kind of almost one film. And the same with the Lord of the Rings is, I suppose, that you talk about the trilogy. Like if someone says like, oh yeah, I love the Lord of the Rings films, they're talking about the trilogy, they're not specifically talking about Two Towers or whatever. So they're often all grouped together, but the one which made the biggest impact on me is actually the third one. So the first one uh, is about a little boy and it kind of charts his life as he grows up. The third one, he's an adult uh, and he's trying to make it as a writer. He's sort of gradually, as the film progresses, leading towards the realization that he's not going to be able to meet the expectations that he set himself in his life but it's so not for children it's <laughs> so bleak i mean his his mum dies his dad dies his sister dies like an old woman that he oh, knows yes. dies everyone in his life mm. dies although it's a spoiler alert spoiler alert his mum dies actually in the second one i think 
anyway, in the third one. So Apu has gradually. So Puff and Charlie is the first one, yeah, and then Puff and Charlie is the first one, and then it the has a trilogy. Second one is Aparajito, I think, and the third one is better known as the World of Apu, and it's a trilogy, and it basically follows young boys' life from growing up in rural India to working, I think, in the second one for like a printing company, um, mm-hmm. and tending to his ailing mother to um, being a down and out kind of starving artist type who's trying to make his dream as a writer, but he's gradually finding that he's kind of out of control of aspects of his life mm. but it's quite a slow meditative watch it's not a chaotic movie it's so it's not just it's not just the end of a film it's the end of a trilogy is that what you're saying it's the end of a trilogy in a ah. sense it kind of comes full circle mm. so apu enters into in essence an arranged marriage he's actually a step-in groom so mm. like the groom pulls out of the, the wedding he steps in and he becomes married to this woman they um make it work as a relationship and mm. She has to go away to live with her family. Her, this is such a massive spoiler. I'm literally spoiling the entire movie. She dies in childbirth, and he has a son who he doesn't... I know, it's super bleak. Yeah, children's movie! <laughs> well, it's about children. It kind of is. Like, he refuses to see his son out of resentment that, in his words, he only exists because she doesn't. So he never wants to see his child. So years pass. And he always resists going to see this boy. I mean, get a therapist, doesn't it? I know. He comes around to his senses at the end of the movie and he, he goes to meet his son. He tries to win his son over again and again, but the child just doesn't want anything to do with him. Yeah, that's fair. He's like kind of reckless and violent, the child at this point, because like he's grown up completely without any degree of parental support whatsoever. Mm. Um, he's been brought up by his grandparents, and he initially meets his father, Apu, by throwing rocks at him. He's literally just like, fuck you, sir. Mm. Finally, at the end, Apu decides he wants to leave. So he, he, he can't convince the child to come with him. He wants to move back to Delhi, and he wants to bring the boy with him um, to start a new life, but he cannot convince the child to leave, and he doesn't want to force him to go either. So he sets off down the path, and he looks over his shoulder one last time and in the distance he sees what looks almost like a little silhouette which is the boy standing basically on a pile of rocks watching him go so he sets off a little bit further and he looks back and he realizes this is almost like a game because the kid has moved a little bit closer again like a Mm. sort of weeping angel child (laughs) he's gradually incrementally moving closer to him every time he glances back over his shoulder finally the kid runs to him and it's a hugely emotional moment and he pulls the kid up onto his shoulders and for the first time in the Pretty much a long time we see Apu smiling as him and the child walk off together to start a new life. And it's this tremendous catharsis. It's just come full circle from watching Apu as a little boy to Apu with a child of his own mm. setting off to start a new life together. And it really is, if you've watched the trilogy, which you haven't, it's an amazing end to the trilogy. It just seals it completely into sort of a full circle of watching a child in sort of his most seminal beginning moments to growing up having a child of his own and starting a new life despite all of the things he's had to overcome lots mm. of death it's amazing it's really amazing and ah oh, you know i cry every time prawn salty prawny tears mm, just again down my prawny the last thing we need is more salt salt in the rock water yeah, so that's the film that's that jumps out most to me okay it's a highly emotional ending it's a highly effective ending and thematically it's really really rich i love it well uh, i suppose we could go from there to talking about toy story 3 because i feel like that's meant to be again that's a kind of circuit circuitous isn't it yeah this is the thing like 
And I haven't seen the fourth one. Think about, no, neither have I. Not interested. I'm not I interested. I can't imagine that it could possibly add anything new no. to what's happened throughout the movies. Like, I know that supposedly explores, like, Woody and his relationship with Bo Peep, which is something that, why would anybody be even remotely interested in that? Mm. I do not know. But, I mean, supposedly it's, it's about, I guess, Woody moving on. I don't want to see that. No. Woody did move on in the trilogy. He moved on from the concept of just being a toy for Andy to yes. being a toy for somebody else, which is the essence of what the toys want and what well, they are supposed to be. This is what I, th- I think. This is a, there's, there's a meta commentary there, and I guess maybe maybe this is why Path of Pachali was thought of as a children's film because I suppose if you had been a child watching that first one and then got to the third one, perhaps you'd have matured across them. Because I certainly feel yeah. I don't know what the age, well, I don't know what the year difference is. Though. I so disagree with Mark Kermode. Well, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Um, he's not always right, and he's never come to the fucking beach. So what does he know? But no, you uh, know what? I doubt he even listens to this. You know, no. I, I really. I, yeah. Sometimes, is, sometimes Mark, I doubt he's even there. I love how much you talk about The Exorcist. <laughs> Almost Hi, Mark, an hourly... breakfast. The Exorcist. <laughs> Or William Friedkin's The Sorcerer. Oh, my Um, God. Anyway, anyway, the point being that what makes the ending of Toy Story 3 so emotionally resonant, beyond the context within the film, you know, which is such a clever way of doing that world, you know, and, you know, dealing with the realities, as it were, of that strange mechanic of, like, living toys. But then I suppose there's also the fact that, you know, if you, uh, like us had watched it when the first one when it came out then there's that like extreme catharsis of growing up because you are mm. kind of andy's age around when the film came out in 2010 they were kind of perfectly spaced movies and that's not something that actually gets sort of brought up a lot in the context I, of and, film and i genuinely but... think as time goes by obviously the the problem with all animation especially 3d animation is it's going to age quite badly even though the first film is is still an, a, a remarkable achievement. You know, parts of it have aged physically quite badly, but it's still kind of held, held up by the by the pacing and the structure of it. But yeah, what I'm saying is, in terms of endings, I just thought the third film just had this amazingly clever, like you got the feeling that that ending had really been thought about really hard, and yeah. it just landed in, in every way. I just thought it landed really well. Andy introducing Bonnie to the toys is amazing because mm. the way he describes the toys yes. exactly it's it's perfectly as you say like perfectly thought mm. of yeah. like it's exactly how you as a viewer have thought about these characters mm. throughout the movies exactly how the characters like are established it's a mm. perfect way of encapsulating each character not only that but i guess earlier in the film you also have like this kind of existentialist ending where they almost go they might all yeah. die and they kind of all yeah like accept it and it's the most disturbing i know that like everyone always like kind of un- has started trendily wailing on the deus ex machina aspect of the claw coming down and mm. saving them at the last second but that is also fucking awesome yeah because like, yeah. that again thematically has come full circle because the little aliens who've always yeah, yeah. played like a background role but have always been there just because yeah, yeah. it makes so much it's such a good gag yes. that there would be a giant claw and they'd be like the claw and also it's really awesome at the same time mm-hmm. like because it saves all the characters they get their badass moment of using the giant claw and also it's hilarious because of course if there was a giant claw they'd be like the claw and like it's really cool 
again why Toy Story 3 is such a good film generally because it it's building on the legacy really cleverly of of what that first film was and the second film obviously and I and I just think it's just I just think it's really clever and I think it's something that's absent from say uh, another Pixar trilogy like Cars um, which mm. is just you know that's a hell world but <laughs> but like Toy Story is like something that's missing from people's understanding of those films is just how hard it was I think to make them and, and mm. to write them particularly and I think that's something that you can really tell in particularly the first and the last one not, not nothing against the second because it's one of the best sequels ever made but like you know in terms of like dashing out a sequel it's just brilliant and building on the first one as well but that's we're not talking about sequels um, we've done that already. well yeah but we might do it again sequel to a sequel to sequel, a sequel, sequel fine. Yeah, yeah. it's all good that's Endless what we sequels. do these days it's but can we even recall what we were talking about in the first one? And will we just be repeating? Uh, nope. No. Yeah, almost certainly. I, I literally can't remember a single point I made about sequels in a previous podcast at all. We should move on to talk about another ending because I feel like we've got caught up on just two endings for like ages. Yeah, but they're good endings. They are the endings that I guess, that's what I mean, that have leapt into our brains. What endings are, I would say, difficult but necessary? Or what you'd call... Yeah, thematically necessary, but hard to take, as it were. Can you think of anything that's... So you mean those which are just incredibly bleak? Not or... bleak, not necessarily bleak, but certainly, yeah, like, I would say that the Toy Story one, it is sad, but it's also happy at the same time. So endings that have this kind of, like, this mix of things. The first, because I do have an ending in that's that's in my brain all of the time, and it's... From the moment you wake. The moment, the moment I wake. The moment I sleep. I'm always thinking about this. There's a film called Calvary by... Uh, oh my God, I love that movie. John Michael McDonough, is it? I'm so glad you made me watch that. Yeah, and it's so... Brendan Gleeson is a gem. Yeah, it's so like, I guess, the thing is you could call it, it's like, for some people it's been seen as an affirmation of faith, which I don't necessarily agree with. No, but, it's not. Not really. But the, the, the ending of it, and obviously spoilers... If you've not seen it, skip ahead. It's an amazing movie. But it's an amazing it. film about faith and grief and acceptance. And it's about a priest who, uh, played by Brandon Gleeson, wonderfully. But essentially, the priest gets killed by Chris O'Dowd, as many priests do. You know, he's killed a lot now. Like many are killed by Chris O'Dowd. Yeah, many, um, many d- some die, <laughs> but most are men. killed by Chris O'Dowd. <laughs> but yeah, and then... Uh, just what I think is a beautiful ending is the daughter of Brendan Gleeson going and visiting Chris O'Dowd in prison and picking up the phone in the kind of, you know, to, to talk to him. Because it's meant to be affirming forgiveness, which is the central, like, religious, you know, belief. Uh, and, like, and forgiving the unforgivable. This guy has killed her dad. And at the very last shot being her forgiving it's really powerful and ending on that and ending on forgiveness as well i just think it's a really it's one of my it's just one of my favorite ever endings of a film because it both kind of affirms that structure because the whole film is built around death right and so the whole thing is like is the climax death and so it's building you up to thinking that the end of the film will be his death but the end of the film is forgiveness and they're saying that forgiveness, I think, therefore, is a more powerful force and a more powerful thing to end a film on 
than the death itself, which the whole narrative has been built around. It's just a really clever way of ending something in a in a kind of structurally satisfying um, way. Satisfying way. Yeah, yeah. I would say because that. that was the feeling I got from watching it as well, and mm. it's sort of it's such a lovely microcosm of what Catholicism really is, which mm. is like grief mixed in with guilt mixed in mm. with like repentance mixed in mm. with revenge mixed in with and death tying it all yeah. together like the pure bleakness but a hint of resolution at the end of forgiveness so what other films have like an emotionally powerful ending okay well i'd like to go on completely the almost the opposite direction from that okay but also <laughs> but we're talking about sort of vaguely mm. We're talking about satisfying endings. Mm-hmm. There's one film which springs to mind, which almost has the opposite of a satisfying ending. Okay. It's almost like a trolling ending, and I love it for that because okay. it's completely. <laughs> it's it almost has this anarchic. Well, you didn't get what you want from that kind of ending, mm. which is an American werewolf in London. Okay, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. So basically, David, the protagonist character, is a werewolf. He's bitten on the moors. He didn't mm. avoid the moors. Didn't heed the warning to Rick Mail and a bit part and nice. his various people that, not, yeah, a little bit part for Rick Mail has become a werewolf. Has rampaged around London, yeah. as the title suggests. Finally, he's cornered in an alley by the police and um, the person who he's sort of fallen in love with while he's been in London, who's a nurse played by Jenny Agatha. So cornered in the alley, um, held at gunpoint by the police, he's confronted this snarling, feral form, amazing animatronic, partly created by Rick Baker, looks Mm -hmm. absolutely horrifying. And Jenny Agatha steps forward past the police, and she's basically like, I'm going to try and talk him down. Like, I'm going to try and reach out to his human side she doesn't say this but it's implied so she steps forward and she's like david i'm reaching your arm out and he just fucking goes for her like tries to <laughs> attack her and they just gun him down like the basically gun down the lead character and he falls to the floor turns into his naked self riddled with bullet holes while she's just horrified yeah cuts the black credits playing a do-what version of blue moon going blue 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 just Complete, and it nails how anarchic and crazy and frenetic that film is in places yeah. that it completely robs you of any form of closure whatsoever. <laughs> what happens next? We don't know. He's just dead <laughs> in an alley. His lover's weeping for him. Like, and it just cuts to this incredibly upbeat do what version of Blue Moon out of nowhere. And you're just left like, shit, <laughs> that's the end. And it so robs you of. Nice any form of narrative closure whatsoever and it's so brutal but simultaneously so jarringly upbeat to the music <laughs> that you just laugh which is kind of what the film is because the film is a very dark comedy that mines a lot of humor mm. from how dark the premises are and how incredibly deadbeat everyone's reactions to them are like you've got the protagonist is basically haunted by his friend jack who was mauled by the werewolf but because he was mauled by the werewolf he can't move on mm. from the material plane he can't become like you know a proper ghost to go to heaven or whatever he but instead of being like a ghost he's just a decaying corpse that turns up again and again to talk to david in worse states of repair and with a number of other people as ghosts that david has accidentally killed as a werewolf can just tries to convince david to kill himself through the whole movie <laughs> he just turns up randomly just to tell david to kill himself so they can all move on from the material plane so and it gets loads of humor from this like yeah. somehow it's 
just an amazingly it's almost like a punk rock horror movie without any punk rock in it like it's yes. just really gleefully dark and nasty but often completely hilarious and it gets so i, I just love that ending because like it's just it's a punch in face that that makes me want to talk about um time bandits uh, because I, oh my god that's I, that fucking ending that ending of time bandits like, is what? glorious it's out of nowhere <laughs> like it's just mum dad just it's detonated yeah it just, just blows up the parents <laughs> just, <laughs> what? like it, the whole film has come full circle everyone's got like a satisfying closure yeah, yeah. Like, and it's just got this like wonderfully existentialist ending and then it so the <laughs> the parents blow up. The brief father figure that he had with Sean Connery is the fireman, and he just winks at him and leaves him alone. Yep. <laughs> and so he's Makes just there, no just on his own. And then it just yep. zooms out and out and out to, like, the cosmic map. And then, like, the well, day his hands close it's basically, it. it's telling that it's made by Terry Gilliam yes. because that is the man who would, you know, drop a giant fucking foot on things mm. all the time. Yes. I literally, it's the it is the filmic equivalent of the Monty Python yeah. giant foot going dropping the giant on foot. Things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just like yeah, just because it's funny. Like that's it. Just because it's darkly funny to just and strange. Yes. And he was just uh, it was almost like a fuck it ending. Yes. It's literally like then the parents blow up. Fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> but, what should but we what have? Sean Connery is, in that. What I'm As, saying like, is that Minotaur slaying badass. Nice no, fireman. Why? But, but, um, yeah. but yeah, okay. okay. But that's what I'm saying. Like with um, okay, with something like the ending of Holy Grail, which is you know, in a way, just this kind of like, uh, do you know what I mean? again. Well, that's. I mean, that's a Monty Python sketch spun out of control in the same way yeah. that their sketches, which didn't have endings a lot no, of time, they just the, spun out of control. And just, and you had, just completely you know, Graham control. Chapman would turn up and go, "It's very silly now." It's very silly. But what I'm like, saying is, the equivalent of the the silly foot is in a film like Time Bandits, which is so kind of dense and grand and you know intricate that ending the silly foot ending just becomes this really existential like footnote as it were so it just becomes like this like and what does it all mean nothing it doesn't mean anything it's one of those endings where like because i love time bandits and i yes. often want to go back and rewatch time bandits but the ending mm. kind of often puts me off like i almost as a as a prawnling mm. growing up um, and we haven't done much world building in a while, so let's chuck this out here. But as a prawnling growing yes. up, I used to watch a lot of Blackadder, and I loved Blackadder too. Mm -hmm. But I'd always stop the VHS using my prawn filament. Mm. Uh, what have we got? Like weird prehensile pointy digits? You tell me. Anyway, using my weird prehensile, I can't tell you because I have no words to describe them. I can just wave them, flail them in front of your face, and hope you'll Look, find an adequate descriptor of we them. We can know as much but, about films as we want. And but we know nothing about our own anatomy. Yes, exactly. What We've is been it? robbed of that. But anyway, like, so I would always stop Blackadder 2 before the definitive ending of Blackadder 2. Okay. Because, like, they've all got... There's that wonderful gag where, like, they're, they're all sort of triumphant because they've defeated the bad guy, and Blackadder makes this good gag. He's like, uh, Queenie, you know, life without you is like a broken pencil. Yeah, and yeah. she's like, oh, how's that? And he's like, pointless. And it's like a really cool little... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's lovely. It's just... it's. It's Blackadder triumphant. And then, like, the end credits, and then they're just all dead, and Prince Ludwig is alive, and he's like, gotta get this disguise right. And you can hear the audience nervously, like, uh, fuck? <laughs> like, and it's just like, and it's, uh, I, they literally, they were laughing at the, ch and clapping yeah. at the first ending. Then the end credits. Then this weird little, like, postscript where they all get killed, 
presumably just because in Blackadder usually all the main cast die at the end. Yes. Like and and the audience is just like <sighs> Yeah. And like and when I and whenever I rewatch it, I just don't watch that ending. And I just pretend the canon ending in my head is the one where like the Prince Ludwig dies. Purely because it just I just don't get why that's there and it just kind of always annoys me a little bit. Mm-hmm. Do you kind of get what I'm saying with that? Do you I do, do you too I watch do. that ending or no, no, I no, I think that's just the whole thing is silly, isn't it? I mean, it's like a, it's like a sitcom. Yeah, I to... get that it's a sitcom. <laughs> I get that the plot is really that important. But I loved Blackadder growing up, and it used to really upset me. I just so I just didn't watch that bit, and I still don't. If I rewatch it, I'm just like, nope. That's <laughs> that's the end. Head cannon. Wow. That's that's what happened at the end. Uh, what a fascinating way to treat something that you that you watch. So let's talk about satisfying endings then. If if uh, if we've wandered into unsatisfying territory, let's talk about the end of Back to the Future. Okay, because yeah, oh, the whole trilogy with the train, the like. Uh, <laughs> I just it's love just that. So it, and it holds up. Yeah, yeah. Special that, effects wise, incredibly that train, well. Like it looks really good. Like, like, but that's what I'm saying. The last time I saw it, I'm like, I know what's coming, but even knowing what's coming, it's still a great. It's st- like it still looks better than you remember it, and like yeah, and Doc Brown showing up and he's got kids and all that, and you're just like okay, and he's all Jules and Vern, yeah. which is like perfect. He's like, here's my kids, Jules and Vern, yeah, and yeah. it's just really cool. And then he's just like, right, off we go, better hop in the train, and then the train just folds its like tracks underneath to create like a yeah, hover yeah. platform, lifts up into the sky and shoots off towards the screen. It's just so cool. It's like, I don't want to say the entire like basis of, because I know Rick and Morty is based on the character dynamic of Marty and, and Doc, but like, um, don't look that up. And uh, the, I'd say the entire like character thing of Rick going like, oh, I've just built this thing out of nothing and it's ridiculous and cool. I think the entire like concept of like, this is far more complicated and cool than you could ever imagine it could be is just built off the ending of that last film where you're just yeah. going like here but is the he most ridiculous the yeah, yeah. with seemingly no way back yeah. to the future yeah, yeah, yeah. and somehow managed to have kids develop an enormous flying train travel back <laughs> just to see Marty and then yeah. fly off to space yeah. <laughs> so what, what leaps into your head when you think of like an uplifting, let's say, ending. Oh. To the point of ecstatic joy. The point of ecstatic joy. Yeah, like oh, a joyful have you ending. Seen, um, have you seen One Cut of the Dead? No. You recommended it to me, though. Yeah, it's excellent. Oh, we'll, I'll get to so, that. So, it's a tricky one to, like, sum up in full. And there will be heavy, spoiler alert here, because not actually at all the film that it's marketed as or what it seems to be for roughly 70% of the runtime. It's actually seemingly a zombie movie, but it's actually about a crew making a zombie movie. So the first half of the film is actually just seems like a zombie movie. Oh my God, it's insanely metatextual. and so metatextual that I'm just going to stumble through a fourth wall every other (laughs) word. But basically, like, initially, it seems like they're shooting a pretend zombie movie. Then it seems like a zombie breakout has happened on the actual zombie movie. Then it turns out that it was actually that they were shooting a movie about a breakout of the zombie apocalypse happening on a zombie movie. But it's really unbelievably life-affirming. 
So the second half of the movie is all about them desperately trying to pull together a film which is kind of collapsing because it's an independent movie where a lot of people have their careers at stake on it. Yeah. It's got this joyous final shot where in essence all of them are physically supporting the weight of the movie just through sheer dedication to what they're doing, like working as a team. Where they're literally yeah. there's um, they're shooting the final shot, which is like this really bleak zombie movie final shot. I think it's of, a, of the heroine like surrounded by dead bodies or blood or something. But in order to actually get the camera high enough to do the um, aerial, yeah. they all stand on one of the shoulders to get the shot. Yeah, and it's just this glorious and it's it's, it's bizarre because it's simultaneously shot in an upbeat way because all of them have achieved through collaborative effort the zombie movie and they're literally all supporting one another in this wonderful way but it's also a final bleak shot of like this actual horrifying zombie movie and it's, it's just an amazing movie and that's really that was really life affirming that final shot like i, I love that okay. movie. it's brilliant i would absolutely recommend it the ending i find the most life affirming because there's endings i think they've got like a gag and that's funny and that therefore you kind of leave the film feeling happy but like, what would be an example of that? Do you think? Uh, some like a hot, you know, ending on a good gag. Yeah. yeah you know, yeah, if you yeah, end, is, if you end on like a funny gag. gag, then I think you can, you can come out of the cinema. For those who haven't seen it, it turns out that most people enjoy it warm. Yes. But some people <laughs> don't, and that's the yeah. final some gag. Some like it it's cold. Not, yeah. It's not universal that people appreciate a high level of heat. <laughs> Something. Yeah, they just the end of the and film that's, that's is the, final, and that's the end of the film of the is film. a giant uh, fridge lands on them like a Terry Gilliam foot, unseen. And then they're on a, I think they're on a boat going away as well. And one of them's like, I like it hot, and the other one's like, one of perfect. And I think that's the end of the film, isn't it? I would say, uh, for me, happy endings. I really like the Sword and the Stone, the Disney film, and it ends on like, it ends on a weird meta shit joke. What is the shit joke? Well, he says. Well, I think Merlin like disappears and then he like comes back. Arthur's pulled the sword from the stone. He's the rightful king of England, but he's just a child sitting on the throne there. And there's a kind of huge unknown, yeah. like what's he going to do now? And Merlin like shows up again. Oh, he's like, what do I do? I'm paraphrasing. I don't remember exactly. And he goes like, oh, it'll be fine. They'll make motion pictures of you. And he's like, I don't know what that is. And he goes, well, it's like television but without the adverts. And then the film just ends, and you're like, and you're what? like, it's such a, it's such a, it's such a stupid ending. And it begins in this, you know, yeah. there's a book opening. It's like in the days of yore, you know, and it has this kind of epic scope to it. But just ending on such a flat ending, and because films of that era, you had the credits up the top, and you had nothing on the end, it just ends. And you know, you'd like imagine being in the cinema, and it's just like there's a quick joke, and uh, well, I think we're done. Bye. And you're just like, fuck. I want to watch something. So feel good, genuinely inspiring endings, or like endings that will pump you up. Because we were talking about uh, Back to the Future at some point. Well, it's Back to the Future Part. Back to three, the Future Part Three has that great kind of exciting ending, and I really like things that have have endings that are like unnecessarily like yeah this is gonna carry on and it's gonna be well exciting so it ends on that this ridiculous high and i think it's been rather undone by the second one but i think uh, the incredibles first first yeah, incredibles endings yeah. it is really great because that's that's got such a back to the future three vibe the underminer coming yeah, up yeah, yeah the underminer like appearing and it's like okay 
Back to the Future did carry on as the animated series, but nobody really thinks about that. So, is it Michael Giacchino, isn't it, the composer of The Incredibles? Is I think so. Superbly adept at creating brilliant, inspiring late motifs, and I can't think of a better one in cinema than The Incredibles. Da 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 da. I love that. Yeah, yeah. Like, because the whole thing had a vibe of like playing off Saturday morning cartoons, didn't it? I think actually, in a sense, like quite a lot of what the MCU is built on, built on a lot of what the Incredibles kind of established, which was integrating a lot of what worked from the comic books into a film. Yeah. The, the Incredibles, people tend to forget, has its own like Avengers Assemble moment where they all assemble when they're on the island. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they just kind of strike their battle poses and the music kicks in. And that is basically exactly the same shot that Joss Whedon uses when the Avengers finally get together in Avengers. Yeah. And the camera pans around them and they're all in their battle poses. But done way better because it's Brad Bird and not Joss Whedon. But yeah, despite it kind of being undermined, I'm pretty sure we already made that pun, by the sequel, which isn't bad. It's, which I haven't seen. It isn't bad. I haven't seen it. Isn't bad. No. But, but what I'm saying is the sequel carries on directly from the ending. It kind of destroys the illusion of that ending, which is such a... This has come from nowhere, isn't this weird and exciting? By belatedly, what, 14 years later, going, actually, yes, and this is what it leads to. And you're a bit like, okay, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to harp on about the MCU too much, but with the MCU, what we are effectively seeing is kind of the death of a consolidated ending. Yeah. Like, we're seeing the death of a film on its own merit just being self-contained and enjoyable and having proper closure. Yeah. What I've found recently on re-watching a lot of those movies is there's no sense of closure to each individual narrative because mm. they're serialized. Every single one's got a fucking post-credit scene now. They don't yeah. all have to have it. It only really needs to be the significant ones. And I, I do like the MCU model and I'm, I, I'm a big defender of what they're doing and they're doing generally good work and we're getting solid movies out of it and they're yeah, but it shouldn't be. But it shouldn't be the model but, for everything, and I think in many ways. No, but it's spilling over to a lot of cinema. That's right, because you you do often see. Can't immediately think of an example, but you do often see, like modern, say, action films, standalone action films, or they would be standalone. People going, oh yeah, this would make a good franchise, or like maybe this will have a sequel. But but then that that's always kind of been the way of it since at least the eighties. But like. Because yeah, something like Die Hard, Die Hard's that... got one of the greatest endings, or like greatest uh, denouements, like everything kind of builds up to a really good, clever, sharp thing. There doesn't need to be more Die Hards. I, see, my favourite is the Klingon one, it's a good day to Die Hard. Day! <laughs> Boom! There Wouldn't is. that also be awesome though? Yeah. If it was literally just like dwarf, dwarf trapped on a starship, like, I've got to get out of this place! You know and what? just like... Crawling through pipes. Come on round, have a good laugh. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I am not a merry man. I think honestly that would work really well. But uh, but but yeah, no, no, no. I agree, and I think this is why I feel like a certain fondness for a definitive, uplifting ending. One of my favourites is Death to Smoochie, which is a film I love anyway. What the hell happens in the ending of that? They just have a big, randomly over-the-top dance oh, yeah, number. Oh, they just ice skate, don't they? Yeah, and then they start spinning in the and sky and it's just like... And it's just this, like, over-the-top joyous ending and I really enjoyed that. I re-watched it uh, recently and uh, I was appalled to see that the credits were in Comic Sans MS, which I cannot tolerate, but uh, it's a good ending yeah. nonetheless, despite my, my font 
fascism. What's the worst ending you've ever seen? The what to any film? Yeah, what one sticks out at you as being like a particularly poor ending? Very poor. Very poor. Well, we were talking recently about how um, Inside Number Nine, uh, where they sometimes add another twist in. But Inside Number Nine aren't the worst offenders for that. And I know we're talking about television, but uh, there's a series called Philip K. Dick's Electric Dreams. And every single mm. episode of that was adapted from a Philip K. Dick short story, right? But what they did was, you know the phrase, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Yeah. Every episode they were like, aha, but what if his ending from the novel, but we added a different ending in? And you're like, it's called Philip K. Dick's Electric Dreams. I thought of the worst. Okay, go on. I am legend. Yes, again, it's, it's that, is it a bad ending? Yes, but it's made worse when it's not even an ending from the original source material because you can see why they've done it, which is even worse. If it's like an original thing and it ends kind of unsatisfactorily, you can go, well, there's been choices made there. But if you can see what the original intent of, say, a book was and, and how the author chose to end that in their own way as like a story. I mean, writer, the whole conceit of the entirety mm. of I Am Legend, including the title, mm. is the ending. Yes. The last words spoken by the lead character, Robert Neville, are the title yeah. of the film and book, respectively. So, But it was too much of a downer. From... It was too much of a downer. They couldn't yeah. have a downer was, ending. Okay, so just to clarify for everyone, the original ending was too much of a downer for test audiences, even though it's what the whole novel builds, or it's barely the novel really, it's so thin, but what the mm. whole book builds towards. And they decided to replace it with this bizarre Will Smith sacrifices himself to save humanity ending, rather than the ultra bleak, turns out Will Smith was basically the bad guy all along and th- was slaughtering innocent people in their sleep ending. I think, a, was... I think a really good example of a terrible ending has got to be the Tim Burton remake of uh, Planet of the Apes because it does that... Oh my God, that ending it does, no Yeah, sense. it does that thing where it cannot better a film that's already got an iconic ending, right? So it has to go... So I just love the idea, like that's an ending where you can see them in a room coming up with it. Do you know what I mean? I think those are yeah, the worst endings. Four in the morning, incredibly drunk. Yeah, because it just like and they, and they were just like, just... should we do an ending that's iconic, right? But makes not a fucking bit of sense. Because you're like, yeah. they're like, what is it? Um, he gets back into the pod. He emerges on Earth. He's like, thank like fuck for that. Earth. Contemporary Earth, and he's at the. He goes to the Lincoln Memorial, but the Lincoln Memorial is Monkey Lincoln. It's a Monkey Lincoln, and then all the police are monkeys. And he's like, what? And then the Damn it, you fools. You ruined the ending. <laughs> you did it. You blew you it blew up. You blew up the ending. Damn you all to you hell. Know I would have forgiven it if it had that... Um... If it had that meta twist. That be... Going back to good endings, because I feel like... You could just go on forever about shit endings. I think Phil Lord and, and Chris Miller are particularly good at delivering a really nice ending. Yeah. And I feel like all of the films they've done together, like Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, the Lego movie, the first one, and, and I'm saying the first Cloudy as well. The sequels don't count for any of these things. And uh, Yeah, I mean, the second one is weird. And they did, weird. And they did as well uh, 21 and 22 Jump Street, which are the second 22 Jump Street has an unusually hilarious ending because they're, they're kind of competent action films. You know, a lot of it leans quite heavily on the kind of occasional meta gags and a really good chemistry between Channing uh, Tatum and Jonah Hill. But the the ending of that second film, it has this gag of 
them recording a franchise. So it's like 23 Jump Street, 24 Jump Street, 25 Jump Street, like um, uh, like a ballerina school. So this is kind of as the credits are rolling. I wouldn't necessarily call it a, an ending, but um, it, it is this really, it's this really hilarious kind of like meta gag on franchises. And it's even got a bit where I think Jonah Hill is played by Seth Rogen in one of the films randomly. And then in the next film, it's back to Jonah Hill. And you have Channing Tatum going, I'm glad you sorted out the contract thing. He goes, I've been here the whole time. And like, <laughs> so I love the idea of like, like having like a replacement actor in and everything. And then it, the franchise just like gradually becoming more and more untenable. And I really like a film that's kind of bold enough to take the piss out of itself. I think at best, 21 and 22 Jump Street reminded me of the last good National Lampoon film. The loaded weapon, loaded gun, is it? Yeah, loaded gun one has its definitely has its moments. So what I'm saying is, I think Phil Lord, Chris Miller, uh, undisputed kings of uh, of a kind of good, uplifting, stupid ending. And I really, really enjoyed that first Lego movie, that big twist, as it were, the reveal. And I think it's got a really sweet ending. Yeah. That. It does. And I think some people thought they was that was too cheesy, but I liked it. I thought it was really good. But I liked it. No, what? You know that episode of Arrested Development mm. really early on, back when it was really solid? Yeah. But like in the early days where um, George Michael and Michael Senior have this kind of yeah. like touching moment. And and then he says that's a little cornball. And like it's it's like a call out of the fact that they've simultaneously had that. It's like having their yeah, cake yeah. and eating it, really. They've had a sentimental moment, but at the same time, they're making a metatextual joke about how they've had a sentimental moment. That's like the sweet spot that Chris Miller and Phil yeah, Lord they always manage to do where they get to have their cake and eat it they get they mm. get to do their meta gags but they also get to be heartfelt at the same time and that's why yeah. they resonate because everybody gets something out of that you can either choose to see it as uplifting yeah, yeah. Life or you can be cynical about it and just see it as those a... moments of being a bit cynical yeah. and more aloof about it which is a, a sweet spot that Marvel try and live in mm. a little too much so that it never feels like there's any stakes Lord and Miller nail it more to end on I think one of my favourite film endings The Truman Show I think that's got one of the most mm. stunning endings it never fails to like can't remember how it ends at all so I'm pleased to hear you summing this up the whole thing is this almost allegorical thing that's become more and more relevant as time has gone on about who's watching who you know who owns what yes we all know what The Truman Show's about all right, you just said you didn't remember the ending. You were like, I can't wait for you to sum it up. No, apparently not. I do, but I like, don't want to... <laughs> sound really like... Uh, you said... I, I heard you distinctly say. But you I wanted me to sum it up. Remember you I distinctly so remember this... remember the word of the Truman I... Show. Anyway, the whole point Please, is... Tell me more about this Truman Show. I must the film ends. More. The film ends with him finding a stairway and making... Yeah his choice his first conscious choice as it were to leave and then be a person and the film just ends there you don't see what happens to him mm, like you don't that. know what will happen to him and, I, and it's that wonderful kind of and I think more than any other film I can think of it really does a, a fantastic job in universe of being uplifting and show, it's like an ending that has that gives you the gift of choice because it then like the character, he's no longer in your control either. Yeah, you're liberated. He's in nobody's control. Too. So yeah. you can choose in your mind, does he have a happy ending? You can choose in yeah. your mind. So it's all like free will doesn't isn't always positive. 
yeah, yeah. free will is sometimes negative, but free will is at least having the luxury of pure choice. Yeah, uh, yeah, I yeah, yeah. and I think that I think there's no other. Yeah, there's no other ending. That reminds me of the end of Camera Three, weirdly, which is a very different movie. <laughs> very different movie, <laughs> but <laughs> is a film preoccupied with ideas of Camera Three and who you. Those Gamera movies are awesome. Okay, so the okay. Heisei-era Gamera movies, the three Gamera movies, are well worth watching and excellent. And um, the third one is quite preoccupied with ideas of faith and who you put your faith in. And at the end of the movie, Gamera has been facing off with this creature called Iris, named after one of the main characters' cats, which is this giant tentacly beast, right? So... Yes. She thinks her family were murdered by Gamera when they were accidentally killed in a battle involving Gamera early on. So her hate manifests into this creature called Iris. And Iris and Gamera are facing off. And, Ga- and Iris has Gamera, unless you really well, want to hear just, about Or it. just don't. Just don't. Just do the, just do the end. Okay. So Gamera's end <laughs> up against a wall by Iris. And Iris has a spike through the center of Gamera's palm like Christ. Yeah. And um, oh, much like and Christ, it's draining yeah. Gamera of his precious bodily fluids, to paraphrase Dr. Strangelove. And he's he's building up power to then finish Gamera off. The character who is linked to Iris's consciousness believes that Gamera is evil. Iris snatches yeah. up Gamera and consumes her, shoves her into his chest. And, and she realizes that all along her hatred has been blinding her to the fact that Gamera is actually doing what's best for humanity. But it's too late. Iris has her. Suddenly, after all that she's done to basically fuck over Gamera, Gamera rips his own hand through the, through the spike, pulls her out, saves her, and is holding her close. Iris is about to finish her off when Gamera blows his own hand off with a fireball uses his stump to catch the energy that Iris is shooting, turns it into a giant fist of plasma, explodes Iris yeah. with a fist of plasma <laughs> using a, using basically a hand composed of fire in place of his yeah. severed arm, strides out, places the heroin down. They're all like, okay, so Gamera's sound. Like, he's, he, he wasn't trying to destroy humanity. Suddenly, a giant horde of pterodactyls descends from the sky. He's got the guy off, and they're going to destroy the universe. There's literally thousands. Gamera gives them a look like, I must go now. And strides out with one arm to take on a horde of thousands of pterodactyls for the fate of the universe. The Japanese Air Force flies in to aid him, and they're like, that's the end. That's the end. Like, it's, nice. it's just like, is the world screwed because there's thousands of pterodactyls? And according to the director, Gamera is supposed to represent God. And you must yes. make the conscious choice as to whether or not you think goodness wins or not. So it just ends. So he's giving you... He's giving you the agency a, a to choose whether or, not, whether or not you think he wins or whether or not humanity's doomed. Yeah. And that Gamera is supposed to, despite... It's a very, very literal crucifixion. <laughs> like yeah. whether or not he is going to win, whether or not goodness is going to triumph, or whether or not it doesn't. And it's that's what the whole film is. Like. The whole film is very, very morally grey. To to me, it doesn't sound like he he's giving you agency. It sounds like he's testing your faith. There is a sense of that too. Yeah, I would thoroughly recommend watching those movies. They are really, really good films. It's on my list. It should we'll be get on the it. list. Um, cameras. Right. Should we wrap this up with a song? You will present us with a song. 
everyone wants a good ending. But sometimes you get a shift ending. Unfulfilling, <laughs> it leaves you wanting more. You're crying on the floor. Endings. <laughs> everyone wants a good ending. But sometimes they just... Anyway. <laughs> wow. That's the single. So thank you for joining us. Uh, do follow us on the What's It. We do literally no posts. So uh, if you... <laughs> Follow us on this oh, the small it's. corn snacks known as What's It. We've got prawn talk on every What's It and uh, prawn cocktail flavour anyway. Do interact with us. Tell us what you want to hear. What do you want to hear? What do you want us to talk about? Well, we won't. Huh? We're not gonna. We won't. We're not gonna do us. it. We'll not do it you to spite prick. you. Yeah, exactly. How dare you? How dare you I'm, think you I actually take umbrage with them telling us what to do. Fuck all of you. <laughs> so, on that note, uh, <laughs> who are our, who are our sponsors this week? Crispy Chris's Crispy Crisps. Chris <laughs> called the sun badly. Now they call him Crispy Crisp. But he's launched his own brand of crisps. Yes, they are red, will, as is he. Will each one contain bits of skin? Each one contains flakes hand harvested from Crispy Chris's <laughs> crispy skin. In fact, hand they're composed entirely of Crispy Crisps. Crispy Chris's crispy skin. Crispy Chris. Basically, he holds the bag open, he sheds, and then he closes the bag. 